difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Keith Phipps. Scott Tobias went walking his dog Iris along the beach earlier today, and they've both since disappeared, but we're pretty sure they're okay. Anyway, have you seen the price of beach closed signs lately? This podcast can't afford to have those made up just for him. On the first half of this episode, we discussed the happy accidents and deliberate artistry of Steven Spielberg's Jaws. With this half, we'll look at another movie about a giant shark hungry for an entire beach load of people. John Turtletaub's The Meg. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. I mean, The Meg. (laughs) (laughs) Much like Jaws, The Meg is based on a novel, and it went through a whole lot of screenwriters on its way to the screen. Also, much like Jaws, it features a giant shark. And the resemblance is mostly in there. Or do they? Unlike a lot of shark movies, the Meg does actually try to establish characters who matter, who are fighting their own inner battles, and have something to prove besides just killing a shark. It takes up the capitalism problem again, though it's also back to the hubris of scientists who don't yet realize how interfering with nature is arrogant foolishness that will eventually doom humanity. And yet it's a pretty unmemorable film, in spite of all its attempts to be big, serious, meaningful, and maybe even important. That might be because it's also so clearly and obviously calculated to be profitable. The Meg is the latest international co-production in a recent line of films designed to straddle the line between the American market and the potentially crucial, lucrative Chinese market. The film takes place off the coast of Shanghai and features an international cast starring several prominent Asian actors in primary roles. It also feels like it lands somewhere between a Chinese drama and an American action movie. The attempt to hit the right check boxes may be part of the problem here, Or maybe it's just the over-reliance on a cute dog named Pippin. We'll talk about it after the break. What you people discovered is bigger than we ever thought possible. How big is that thing? It was the largest shark that ever existed. A living fossil. Thought to have been extinct over two million years. Wrong. My God. It's Megalodon. He's kidding, right? Put a tracker on it. Did you guys ever watch Shark Week? He looks heroic, but he's kind of got a negative attitude. Chew on this, you ugly. Okay, guys, uh, why wasn't the Meg more fun? I liked the Meg. 
as long as no one was talking in it. <laughs> I thought it was, it was fun-ish. I'm just struggling to recall details just less than a week later at this point. I remember finding like the sort of suspense set pieces pretty effective. I thought the scenes in the deep, deep water were fantastically creepy, but that is also like speaking to a personal phobia I have of like the very, very deep ocean. But again, I think like there are some pretty cool sequences, some good scares but the just the dialogue in this movie is terrible and like kind of all the other things you laid out in the opening there tasha just like make it not something i could call a good movie but it was one that i you know enjoyed in the theater for the most parts and i could laugh at the parts that i wasn't enjoying you know not to jump to comparisons but i mean you know you look at how smoothly jaws moves from point a to point z mm. and this is just sort of like set piece filler set piece filler and now we're here Yeah, it's like and, a big yeah. creaky contraption mm-hmm. you know it needs to be like one of those underwater gliders and i thought <laughs> i thought the effects were like kind of wildly variable in, mm-hmm. in terms of their effectiveness like there's some like some things that are quite effective other ones it's very sharknado-esque it's not not great and and um i don't know i didn't feel like there was sort of a a real aesthetic to the action scenes either like the most effective i thought was not even really an action scene but the scene was a little girl mm-hmm. and the shark's menacing her outside that, that stuff's good but but i didn't feel like there was really a lot of artistry to the way anything was put together even when it was kind of effective at times yeah, i think like that underwater lab setting you know with like the big glass ring mm-hmm. was like a, you know pretty effective yeah, cool. se- setting you know yeah and it, it definitely pays off in that part but um but so much of the movie is not that <laughs> it's just it's very strange to me that i think the least convincing special effect in the film is the shark mm-hmm. i mean i think all of the different ships gliding around underwater and these you know the deep caverns full of strange creatures i found that all like pretty visually convincing and interesting and every time the shark enters the picture it doesn't look remotely real, which I guess I complained about that with, with Jaws as well. But I don't know, that creepy gravitas of that scene that you called out in Jaws of the shark like slowly gliding underwater towards its victim, there's nothing here that feels remotely that convincing. It's Even though the poster for this movie like directly apes that <laughs> shot. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I just every time the shark showed up, it, it was just so obviously... Like so much of this movie, it feels very calculated. It feels like it's trying too hard. And I feel like they maybe made a CGI shark and then they were like, it doesn't look scary enough. Can you make it darker and like scar it up and just try to make it look like really tough? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, let me make make it look like a tough, mean shark. So it doesn't look like a shark. It looks like a CGI effect to me. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's also maybe a slightly a matter of scale because, like, the shark in Jaws is like we're told it's big. It's it's a very big shark, but like you can still position it against a human for scale. And like, I, I feel like the I feel like the Meg is just too big, man. <laughs> you know, like I mean, it, it's just like a mouth. You know, like you can position it against like, oh, here here it is next to a whale that it ate. You know, but like I just don't feel like that is something that we as humans have as much context for scale wise as we do the human body like i mean you can look at jaws and see how big it is compared to a i'm calling shark jaws but you know what i mean you can like see how big the shark is compared to a human being with the meg it's a mouth you know it's a giant mouth and anything that is attached to that mouth is just sort of not 
really there. Yeah, you know? I think there's like some probably some sort of uncanny valley like graph with sharks where above a certain size they stop being threatening, they start being kind of just unreal and then yeah. not not something that you can actually be afraid of any more than you can be afraid of a giant dragon or something. Okay, now here's here's where I'm going to bring up one of probably many questions I'm going to have about this film's plot, <laughs> but in one of many scenes that it takes directly from Jaws where they catch the Meg, you know, and it's all going to be okay and he's strung up on on the ship. Was that a megalodon or was that just like another shark? Like, should this be the Megs? Two. I think it was a miniolodon. <laughs> like, I think the idea was that there was another megalodon. So that more, wasn't so as more than one. So more than one megalodon came up through this. Through the window, that brief window when they could <laughs> yeah. escape so from there. How many more are out there? As, as many sequels. Many sequels? I, mean, no, I, was say, I think I said they probably can't make any more movies. Than this. <laughs> At least four. Yeah. <laughs> a, a minimum of four, each one bigger than the last. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the last one, it's personal. <laughs> oh, and the, the, the third one is uh, somehow in 3D, which 3D. the other ones are just yeah. two-dimensional sharks. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. The direct ripoffs, again, having just kind of complained a little bit about finding out that Mission Impossible movies were stealing from Hitchcock. One reference to Jaws uh, in this movie might have been cheeky, but by the time we were like at, at three or four visual references or or dogs with the, <laughs> with the same name, I guess it's Pippet versus Pippin, but it's still it's just what? It's a completely different movie. Stop, uh, stop it, Tasha. I don't know. It just <laughs> it just it really started to feel. Like, if you're going to do this much of Jaws, this should be a better movie. You know what reference I did like, though, was the one to Finding Nemo. That was funny. Where are we on Statham? I, I like Statham. I, I generally, oh, I, I, enjoy I, Statham, I find him yeah. very, very solid, even in not so great movies. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I thought he was perfectly solid here. I've, I've liked him a lot more in other movies, sure. but uh, I mean, Spy, obviously, yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. high point. Yeah, and, and I think probably even the later Fast and Furious movies, I've kind of enjoyed him more because I feel like those movies maybe lean a little more into their camp value than this does. And I think a lot of people, at least a lot of people I know, I think were hoping that Meg would be like ultra campy, like verging on Sharknado territory. But it's like Tashi brought up Chinese dramas. It's just like a little too serious for its own good, but it's also too silly for its own good. It's like in this weird tonal middle ground. I think the thing that's always been interesting about Statham is that he's very good at straddling that tonal middle ground, like mm. much like The Rock, who is, I think, edged more and more into you mean like Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who's just kind of edged more and more into that, like, uh, family-friendly, you know, smiling, safe kind of dude. Like, both of them kind of have a way of bringing across, like, toughness, but also charisma and kind of an easygoingness and a willingness to laugh at themselves that I think is very welcome in the kind of character that they play very often. And Statham has always played these, like, tough glowering mean guy roles where you can tell that he's self-aware and where there's usually just a couple of wink wink jokes no matter how grim the movie is there'll be something where he kind of like lets you in on it here one of those things is his like i'm sure contractually obligated shirtless scene (laughs) uh where the the female lead walks in on him having just gotten out of the shower and wrapped in a towel and there's like some full-on female gaze going on there and then a bunch of I like mind it. wacky hijinks because she's embarrassed. But. but it's also the closest the film gets to any sort of sexuality at all because they have this, you know, alleged romance, those two characters, Oof. but it's always just people 
telling them that they like each other yeah. and like you know i don't even it's, sure it's they, so predicated on the kid I'm not like sure. that romance doesn't exist without yeah. the kid i'm not even sure they touch each other in that movie yeah, yeah but i mean that's a very chinese cultural thing right. that's, I what I was, that's what i was wondering if it, if it was sort of playing into the the sens- sensitivities of the chinese market by doing that yeah my understanding is that a lot of what we consider just sort of standard pda is mm-hmm. like does not fly in the chinese market but it's odd to see it in a film that that's you know when you straddle those two cultures and try to please them both it makes for some odd moments i'm sure it makes sense for odd moments for chinese viewers as well it does but at the same time a lot has been written about the completely negligible sexuality in say the marvel movies which are not expressly designed for the chinese audience but at the same time you have the same kind of thing of thor and uh, jane are totally in love and they're going to express that by standing on opposite sides of a soundstage and maybe in completely different shots while (laughs) looking at each other longingly there's so much of that that goes on in the marvel movies which just kind of don't have sexuality and it kind of feels like that here but it also feels like they could just get away with not having it rather than yeah. having a character yeah, periodically I, 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 remind you this is a thing. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't want this to turn into an argument for more sexuality in our shark movies. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I think I think we need to go in the other direction. More sharkuality. <laughs> I mean, it just, it ends up feeling like one of those pro forma plot points where somebody said, well, we have to have this. We don't have time for this and we don't want to do it. We'll just have a character describe it as having. <laughs> I, I did. I did think it was interesting, especially seeing this movie right on the heels of Mission Impossible Fallout. That this movie also includes the ex-wife character that our protagonist is on friendly terms with and gives her blessing for this new relationship. I don't know if that's like a recurring thing in movies or if it's just a coincidence that I saw these two movies more or less back to back. It was but. an odd detail to include. Every supporting character gets their own like little thing. None of them really go anywhere but they all get their own little thing you know to some degree to me that particular flavor of plot point feels sort of progressive because it feels like first of all an attempt to have more female characters uh, that actually have some kind of backstory and second of all it just sort of feels like a way for the film to hand a, a male character from one romance to another by saying you know this this guy is safe yeah he's like you know, glowering action hero or whatever, but like he's a good man and a good husband. I'm going to put him in your hands. Uh, I'm going to vouch for him. He's a nice guy. Like it just, it feels very nice guy-ism and it becomes a weird touch, but it's also kind of humanizing. I feel like it's maybe meant to get us around the, the 80s feeling of action hero meets girl, saves girl, saves girl again, saves girl yet again, gets girl. Because but, but, girl is prized. But this is really just dividing that between two different girls. Because like Jason Statham's character, like he said, in some of the dialogue that characterizes this movie dialogue, like the, the guys come to him and he's like, I'm not going to do it. Nothing, gonna, nothing you can say is going to get me down there. And they're like, it's your ex-wife. And next scene, he's down there. Sure. And so he has to rescue her. And then later in the movie, he has a different love interest to rescue. So I don't know. It's... Yes. It's a it's a one silly thing with this film, yeah. right? Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, as a motivator for getting him in a place he swore he'd never go back to, I'm kind of okay with it. And it also enables that that kind of like loosey goosey sequence where they come to him and he's just like, "Hey man, like I'm hanging out doing my Jason Statham hippie thing," yeah. which 
I got my feet on a table, man. I don't care about nothing. I'm wearing a really loose shirt. I had that set up where I was basically someone else was fishing, and I could just sit around and drink beer all day in in nice surroundings like that. I'm not going going anywhere. I'm not going back in the water. Especially you're not going down to like the bottom of the Marianas Trench in order to be eaten by a megalodon. Yeah. But what if you have this very tragic backstory involving the very thing yeah. that you are being asked to go down? Were you confused by the opening scene? I mean, it's all explained a million times later, but I was, yeah. I was confused as to what was happening in that opening scene. I, don't, I, I didn't understand that we were on a nuclear submarine until it exploded. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I guess I didn't catch that. I thought it was another like scientific mission kind of thing. It just seemed like a big underwater dome. But I definitely got the idea that it was coming apart probably because it had been attacked by some sort of megalodon and that he was trying to rescue people and then it became, can you go back for your team or just get these people to safety? And he made the decision to get the people to safety. And I, I actually liked that as a plot point, just the whole idea that this thing that he's carrying around with him as his his own personal drama is that he couldn't save everybody. Mm-hmm. And he feels guilty about it, but he also feels incredibly angry at people who guilt him about it. As plot points go, it beats nothing, which is what we learn about most characters in monster movies, shark movies, animal movies. Just a sort of a random detail about this. This film is based on a novel by Steve Alton. And it's been into, there's a really good Wired story about the many possible versions of this film that could have happened over the years. Guillermo del Toro was going to direct it at one point. Jan de Bont uh, was going to direct it at one point. And if, if, you know, long story short, it got made. But if they do sequels, I don't know if they're going to draw from the many sequels that Alton has written, uh, but I do hope they keep at least one subtitle, the one used for the third book, which is Meg, colon, Hell's Aquarium. <laughs> that, that, that is such a genius title. I mean, that sounds like the third Jaws, where it's in a like a yeah. aquarium. Yeah. You know, it's following it to the letter. You know what there isn't a lot of in Hell's Aquarium? Angelfish. <laughs> I, Scott's not here. Somebody's got to yeah. make the dad jokes. I, I mean, I'm surprised that you have not made more fish puns, Tasha. Did you just use them all up on the Shape of Water uh, episode? I, I, I think I officially retired on on that whole thing. Fin. yeah but just overall like i love a shark movie like i love a a cheesy shark movie i deep blue sea is a a running gag between me and my terrible movie loving sister we've watched that movie more times than i care to count sounds like you just called your movie loving sister terrible (laughs) her name's tara uh (laughs) you know she is kind of a terrible movie loving sister because she keeps dragging me into watching these movies but that's just maybe she was the one who introduced me to it and it's like that that to me there are there are two great shark movies jaws on the one end of the spectrum and deep blue sea on the cheesy ass like ridiculous it's made out of science and the science is ridiculous and you don't have to worry about it samuel l jackson gets eaten by a cgi effect that doesn't look real just straight up self-aware comedy that also moves like that film moves along nicely and it's got ella cool j and a parrot (laughs) (laughs) it really does there is a character in the meg that feels like ella cool j without a parrot like his only function in the film is to make the occasional like livening things up wisecracks that also function as boy we got to get out of here why isn't anybody aware that we need to get out of here that would be dj (laughs) okay so page kennedy Here's the weird thing about The Meg for me. 
this is a large cast. And usually when you have a horror film yes. th- that up front is like, here's a large cast of people with one characteristic apiece. It is not, here are their jobs. We're going to zip by them. It's not important what they do, but here's a large cast. What that means is they're going to get eaten one, one by one. We lose like what, two of them? <laughs> exactly. And we come out the other end with this huge cast still intact, yeah, yeah. standing around. Well, we're so atta- <laughs> we've gotten so attached to these characters. It would just break our hearts <laughs> to, to part ways with Jax or Dr. Minwei Zhang. I mean, no, he he dies. Shang dies. Oh, you're right. Sorry, yeah, you're, and right, you're right. Rain Wilson dies. Rain Wilson dies. Um, and um, the, the Toshi Masioka. Yeah, uh, and the Harris. and the the large guy. The, the wall. wall. <laughs> it ain't the wall, Genevieve. I can't believe you don't know that. Um, this piece played by Olafar Dari Olafsson, who you've seen in tons of stuff. But but I, I like that where other actors can probably feel that they're being brought in for international appeal uh, to appeal their, to their individual territories. Uh, he's from Iceland, so they, <laughs> <laughs> he's just there. He's out there. You know, there's not enough people to justify that. He's just there because they like him. He's just cornering the heck out of that Icelandic shark movie. Market. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I I didn't think that the movie chickened out on killing anyone but the dog pretty much encapsulates it though you know like the the, the dog lives and pippin pippin <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, by the way, if that movie is anything remotely representational of that time, that dog's swimming around in the ocean for like two hours right? before somebody pulls him out. I mean, I mean yeah. that's a small dog, too. Like, they do not have that kind of stamina. Small dog, big ocean, apparently just has its own little flotation device that we never see. I don't know. But yeah, it just, it weirds me out that there's so many people in this movie, and then by the end, there's still so many people in this movie. I mean, usually part of the mechanic of a disaster film, a monster movie like a killer shark movie killer croc killer anaconda movie whatever is big cast and as they get whittled on by like one by one you get to know the remaining cast members better and by the end you've got like two or three people whom their survival matters and you know what they're like under under pressure i never really felt like i got to know these people because there were still so many of them at the end I don't disagree with you, but I also think that by the end of the movie, the Meg has like homed in on the pairing of Jason Statham's character and Lee Bing Bing's character and the child Mei Ying as well. Like I, I think like it's really Su Yin's father Jing's like death is sort of the catalyst for that sort of centering on that pairing, I guess. So to the extent that the movie does sort of focus in on characters as it as it continues i think it's happening there like i honestly can't remember if jacks did die or not I'm, she, I, I remember there being a fake out i can't remember if they actually if she actually did die afterwards or she doesn't okay. I, and uh, like i that felt to me like i wasn't for i wasn't familiar with ruby rose but she just got cast as batwoman yeah so it was nice to see her on screen but i kept thinking the way this movie is presenting her this is probably an actress or like music star that i just don't know because she's been kind she's kind of being given the star treatment yeah she was uh kind of a big deal in orange is the new black and it's third second or third season i think i thought i made it through the third season it's up to the like twenty yeah. seventh season right now, <laughs> so it's it's a little hard to remember. Just the six, I've been yeah. I've been deep well, in I mean, there's a lot to say about uh, shark movies in general and why we go to them, and uh, about the complicated mechanics of building a cast that you actually care about. But probably the best way to do that is to move into connections. So we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Jaws and the Meg. Thank you. 
time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I, I want to start with the shark movie. I mean, obviously, these are both movies about, you know, big fish that eat people. Like, what's what are, what's your take on the enduring appeal of the shark movie? I, I mean, I honestly feel like everyone is trying to be Jaws at this point and, and, and not getting there but i mean but i think you know the you can find some interesting variations on them like i I think deep blue sea is one of them i think that movie is as you say fun not not good but but fun and and i think that's part of why people enjoyed the sharknado films beyond um well i was gonna say beyond the camp appeal but that's kind of all there is but (laughs) but just sort of like the jaws taking you know jaws put on steroids and given terrible special effects and the who the terror read Jason Priestley, uh, Ian Ziering, Ian Ziering, yeah. Sure. Um, why not? Um, I mean, I, I get it, but I mean, I think you know, if one thing this parents confirmed is like it's kind of tough to top. As to why it's enduring or reliably scary, like I think just the function of below the water of something happening below your sightline is always going to be unsettling and scary. And I haven't seen a whole lot of shark movies, so and it sounds like Deep Blue Sea like did this well before the Meg did. But in comparing these two films, I was struck by the difference in that the Meg spends a lot of time in deep, deep water before it comes up to the surface, kind of exploring that space the Megalodon comes from. And like that world, as I said, like I find terrifying (laughs) and like like deep water is like deep space, sort of uncharted. You don't know what's going to be there. It's several atmospheres removed from where he is to like, you know, it's a scary setting in and of itself. And then this is a monster that comes from that scary setting and up to our surface, but we can't see it until it's too late. Like that is the thing about sharks is by the time that you know it's a threat, it is too late. I guess, other than the fin, but they're pretty good at hiding the fin when they need to, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the fin is just such a a neat little cinematic touch of... Like, I'm, you still can't see most of me, but you know that I'm here. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that kind of is like the signature shot of the shark movie is, you know, the, the dangerous music is playing and whoever doesn't want to be in the water is in the water. And like, slowly the fin emerges as, you know, it's it's moving towards them. Or the fake fin. <laughs> or or the fake fin pulled by Wait, the, small the, children. The Meg had a fake fin moment too, right? Am I imagining that? It had a... Uh, like a Roomba or something that's like some right. little device with a, a little fake fin that's, on it. That's right. That was, you know, yet another lift from Jaws. Yeah. A lift from Jaws, you say. <laughs> yeah. How, how did you guys feel about all of the Jaws lifts? Did any of them like uh, work for you? I, mean, I think they're so cheeky with it. It's, I don't know. Either they're cynically hoping that there's a whole generation that hasn't really seen Jaws or just kind of being so obvious with their homages that, that you know, that there's on the, on the surface there, unlike a shark. It didn't bother me, but it, it was a lot. I mean, like the dog doesn't particularly bother me. The second shark thing just seems like a, a weak lift. But the whole business where you actually have a beach full of uh, celebrators and then the mm-hmm. one woman on her own with the little boy that she allows to go in the water by himself. And then Alex he's out Kinder there with moment. his, with his floaty <laughs> and, and like, you're pretty sure that he's going to be the one that the shark specifically eats. And then you've got the repeated shot of the shark swimming around underwater, which by the way, 
what are all of those bathers doing swimming in like 60 foot deep water? Yeah, right? Like every every beach I've been to, like people always just make a beeline for the sandbar so they can like sit and stand in their waist to water. <laughs> Who wants to actually swim in the ocean, man? Uh, I mean, I like deep water, but like I, I, I kind of top out at maybe 15 feet. Like that is some deep water. You know, the version of that scene in Jaws didn't have were those giant hamster ball wheel thing <laughs> right <laughs> that's I, that's how you really bring it into the 21st century i, I saw that i thought well there's no way that the, the shark's going to engage with that in any way <laughs> <laughs> okay so the shark biting that thing and it popping was one of the most pure comedy moments yeah. i mean that was like some piranha level goofiness there you know i i do admire the filmmaker's restraint with the meg that there were several scenes involving helicopters and, and none of those scenes did the shark attack the helicopter. Right. So. That's, well, the Jaws 2, they're going to save it for the sequel. <laughs> right. Although they did have a straight up Jaws 2 shot where somebody's being pulled out of the water as the shark beelines in and, and then they do the uh, emergence swipe along the side of the boat. Like mm. that's straight out of Jaws 2. It does feel like the whole helicopter thing does feel like a fairly funny tease mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, I am convinced that the filmmakers here were being reasonably like self-conscious about the tropes and kind of making fun of them. Yeah. I just wish the movie was either funnier or better. Since you brought it up in that opening, now I'm kind of dwelling on the international co-production element there and wondering to what extent, if any, the desire to have this movie be able to play in other markets was at all responsible for any sort of like self-awareness or overt referentiality or camp factor being kind of dialed back because comedy is one of those things that famously doesn't translate sure. you know and like if you wanted to make a hyper self-aware campy shark movie that lifts liberally and knowingly from the ultimate american blockbuster that is maybe not going to play in china the way it would here so i do wonder if this is one of those like iron man 3 situations where there'll be a different cut in china Mm. you know because there's definitely a lot of threads that could potentially be pulled on in terms of the relationship between tu yen and her father and her daughter and just that whole the whole sense of uh like dad's gone away to be a soldier like he's gone away to do his duty and like in the meantime we're left behind and it's sort of a tragedy but we're also doing our duty and part of that duty is like a relationship to my father and like serving his goals like all of that feels like the material of chinese dramas that could perhaps be drawn out a little more maybe a little more there's a lot in there already i mean well there's a lot implied there there's sure. a lot of structure there but it's not structure that's taken advantage of like in any way with the drama i hope that that cut explains who stayed behind on the you know exploration station with the kid while literally everyone else in the movie went on the ship to hunt the shark <laughs> She was just there alone, right? Yeah, 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 the place has just been attacked by a shark and has a bunch of cracks in the glass facade. It just looks like cracks. There's there's so many layers to that glass. Yeah. I mean, she'll be fine. She's very plucky. It, the the undersea uh, thing is not going to collapse from shark bites. That happens in Jaws three. We need to save it for the second sequel. But yeah, that's and that also felt like very much yet another reference to the Jaws franchise, even if it doesn't fully play out. So... Wait, what do you mean? The the plucky... Oh, oh. The the, whole undersea sciencearium um, that is being attacked (laughs) by a shark. I thought you meant the the plucky kid, which Jaws Jaws has some kids, but I don't think any of them are the capital P plucky kid character the way that the girl here is. 
Yeah, I mean, Jaws 2 has a character who's a little like that, but definitely not just to that, that like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, super cute, and, and <laughs> running it, around arranging her uh, mother's romances kind of I way. Mean, I I like that kid. As, as far as, like, plucky kid actors go, she was, she was, yeah, pretty, she was, good. She was pretty good. I liked her shoes. They lit up. <laughs> now, there's something we don't see enough of in shark movies. Light-up shoes. Why don't we talk about the exposition in these movies? <laughs> Keith, you seemed uh, pretty eager to talk about that one. Yeah, I, I mean, we kind of talked about how graceful it is in, in Jaws and how it's sort of sort of seamlessly integrated into the action of the film and it moves right along. And I think we can say the same with the Meg, right? <laughs> mm, uh, yeah. There is a lot of, especially when they first get onto the science station, there's a lot of, here is the current experiment. Let us walk you through it. How fortunate that you don't know what we're doing on this billion-dollar project that you you set up for us. And also, like, with filling in Statham's character's backstory, like the doctor showing Lee B. Bing's character, I'm assuming, like, confidential interview footage of him, like, <laughs> explaining what happened on the nuclear submarine, like, just to prove a point. I don't know. The doctor doesn't like him. Yeah. He's, he's willing to undermine him and apparently keeps that footage on him at yeah, all so, times. Yeah, so, like, we... Because, like, Satan's character is this, like, stoic, damaged type, whatever, who does, you know, a, a Quint character, perhaps, but who would never give a monologue that Quint gave in, in Jaws. So, like, other characters have to tell us why he is and what he is and, and why we should care. And it just happens, like, in so many different ways, and none of them feel at all natural and like compared to jaws i'm sure we could share a bunch of dialogue that does a ton of expository heavy lifting but i'll just point to one that i have pulled up on my in my notes right now when brody and hooper are on the boat before they find ben garrison's boat and brody asks hooper are you rich and he says yeah and then brody says how much and he goes personally or the whole family and like that just tells you so much about mm -hmm. that character and like why he's able to do the thing he's doing what sort of chip he has on his shoulder about it you know what is motivating him and um, and how he's expressly different from anybody else on that yeah, island this working class hero stuff is uh, as he says of quint so yeah and that's literally like what less than 10 words of dialogue you know and it tells you what the Meg would take a whole scene involving some surreptitiously video footage, you know, to do. There's also that scene you kind of referenced in passing where Quint crushes a can in one hand mm -hmm. and Hooper responds by crushing his styrofoam coffee cup in yeah. his hand. And that does it without any words. Like that's him like mocking Quint's pretensions to masculinity but also kind of acknowledging that he himself isn't nearly as tough. He's like making a joke both at Quint's expense and his own. And like that gesture tells you so much more about his character than I think we ever really learn about Jason Statham. I suppose it is useful to be informed that he and his wife are both good people, but did not work well together as a relationship, which is... There, there is the one little exchange uh, that I did like uh, character-wise where... Once he comes gets comes down to the bottom of the sea to rescue her, and like at that point she's uh, had a spar through her abdomen, she's in pain. They hook the two things up. He opens it up, and she sees him, and she just has this like clear moment of, "Ugh, you," <laughs> and then she smiles at him. Yeah. And it's it it's just I, I thought it was a really expressive little moment of what it feels like to both see your ex and have a like you're gonna say you told me so 
kind of feeling, but also, you know, relief because she doesn't hate him and now she maybe she won't die. I feel it was very unmeg like to not have Jonathan explain that moment three more times <laughs> just to make it clear. I just I just briefly want to shout out the actress who plays that character, Lori, Jessica McNamee, Mm -hmm. who I was very distracted by the whole first part of the movie, wondering if she was Rebecca Romaine, like with some weird like CGI on her face. But no, she is a different actress who just looks a lot like Rebecca Romaine. But yeah, I mean, like, it's kind of a thankless part. But I liked her. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I was just captivated by her because I thought she looked like another actress, but I don't think so. I think that she acquitted herself well in a small, not particularly uh, meaty part. I mean, she has a nice uh, tough girl energy about her. Yeah. Like you can, tough girl energy. That's a good way to put you it. You can absolutely believe that like, you know, she has a serious Greenpeace past yeah. where she did illegal stuff for her beliefs. Oh, yeah. We know that because she told us that explicitly in she exposition. Did. In fact, <laughs> explain it and spell it out. Also, I don't think I'm ever going to be tired of Masioka. He's just fun. Yeah, I hadn't seen him in a while. Seen him in anything like recently and forgotten about him or, or... Um, you know, it's possible he was just like lying out of bed made entirely out of hero's money. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, she, he was in Death Note, which I missed. Is that the note that he wrote out and put in the, the walls? The <laughs> it kind of was a Death Note. Yeah. <laughs> well, apparently he's in Mozart in the Jungle, um, which I still haven't seen. Okay. And, uh, Nobody has. Hawaii Is that just a theoretical show that may not actually exist? I, I, I know a couple of people who say it's good. Okay. So. Uh, including Emmy voters, I believe. Yeah. A friend of a friend in Canada that, that watches the show? No, one, one Alyssa Wilkinson is oh, a fan. A real person. Yes, right. a critic even. Mm. Not just a real person, a real Alyssa. Yeah, all right. One thing also we have, we've touched on it before, but we have Jaws at the beginning of, of the blockbuster uh, as we know it, and the Meg is also a blockbuster so in, in a more you know later form. Although, you know, it's, it's worth noting that it is, you know, you know, it may be a matter of small victories, given that original is a little tough to apply to the Meg, but it is a pretty big hit. That's not a sequel or a reboot or or a uh, spinoff or a uh, what are the other terms? Yeah. <laughs> you did a whole piece yeah, on this. Yeah, re- re- reboot. Well, revival is in in TV. Reimagining. Yes. That's why yeah. Well, it's it's a, it's an I mean, original property. It could be property. a franchise starter. Sure, but it could be it a franchise yeah, starter. Yeah. But, but but it is drawing on a very well established film lineage that mm-hmm. even if it is not like a direct sequel to any movies it's still like playing on our familiarity with those movies in a way that you know franchise movies are playing with our familiarity with the franchise like it is an original property but right. it feels very much like a property as opposed to like a, an original story it, it feels also like so we have we talked about jaws you know creating a whole blockbuster season the summer movie season in some ways and this is feels like since then, there's been stratifications and of, of that. There's films, types of films that come out in May. There's types of films that come out in other months. But this is very much a type of film that comes out in August. It's mm-hmm. sort of like, let's see if this works <laughs> kind of slot. And, and Re- release it during the hottest month of the year when people really want the air conditioning. Yeah, but also mm-hmm. when like maybe you're tired of the familiar. You yeah, want to make, take true. your you know take a chance of something new. Like to, to me, one of the quintessential. It's a good movie, but a quintessential August movie is is uh, Dark Man. It's like you know, beginning of the summer you had Dick Tracy. It's 1990. You know, recently. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, beginning of summer you had this super hyped, very familiar property, Dick Tracy. You could not escape it, and then. In August, you had Darkman and his campaign, like, who is Darkman? And then, you know, to answer the question, to go see the movie. I feel like that's kind of the August thing. It's like, yeah, take a, take, take a chance on this. There's also that end of summer feeling of, you know, maybe you spent the whole summer looking forward to this particular Tuttle movie or these three or these five, depending on your bent. At this point, they're all out. 
And, and, you know, you are probably still jonesing for some more sugar. We've got some more sugar. It's not something that you recognize, but, you know, you you want another refill on that Coke, right? It, it's unfamiliar packaging. Uh, this might be slightly irregular sugar, but, but it is still sugar. <laughs> I want to just refer to uh, all weird August movies from now on as irregular sugar. <laughs> sugar. I just want to talk briefly about the endings of giant shark movies and, you know, giant monster movies in general. But I think shark movies in particular, maybe because there are so many of them. It is, and because, you know, sharks are pretty relentless and implacable. Like your giant anaconda, you probably just cut its head off or whatever. You know, they get kind of narrow in the neck. But like a shark is a big, simple killing machine that you can do a lot of damage to, and it might not realize it enough to stop eating you before you get eaten. <laughs> so there's always the thing in the giant shark movies like, how do you, how do you kill the giant shark in a way that it, we haven't already seen a giant shark be killed before. And that's kind of become like, I don't know the way other people go to horror movies, like hoping for a good, memorable, gruesome kill somewhere in the back of my head is always just how, how are they going to do this shark that hasn't already been done in umpty jillion shark movies? Real quick, remind me, how does, how do they actually kill the, the actual Meg? So Jason Statham, spoiler for the Meg guys, if you haven't seen it by now, I'm about to, to give away the Meg's tragic death. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Statham guts it with his ship. That's right. And then goes flying into the air and stabs it in the yeah, eye yeah, yeah, with a poison right. spear. Okay. And then all of his other sharks eat it. So it's kind of like we couldn't decide which one of these to yeah. go with. So we did them all. That was a good moment, too, because that's where you got a sense of scale. You had like, these yeah. pretty big sharks that like, like feeding like, like little minnows. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I asked that to make sure that I wasn't misremembering the two sort of like fake out shark deaths we get, which both I feel draw directly on how Jaws kills its shark or plans to kill its shark. And like first we have the harpoon injection of the strychnine or whatever it is that works on the first Meg that we, it turns out is not the real Meg and juries out whether it actually is a Meg. But but you know, the, that, that guy. Oh my God, it is such a Meg. And then we get the fake out with the blowing the what we think is a shark up a la Jaws and it turns out to actually be a whale that, that, that they blew up and there's whale chunks everywhere. But I just thought it was interesting in comparing this film to Jaws that it used two of the devices that Jaws use to kill its shark to kill not its shark in the bank. <laughs> I mean, th- that is sort of a very sequel-esque kind of way to go. Mm-hmm. And here it's an homage, I guess. Yeah. Like, hey, remember all those things that got that other shark you were scared of? Not going to work here, bro. Right. Going to have to up your game yet even still more. What you need is a statham. You need a, a statham <laughs> flying through the air. Well, I mean, that the whole thing where he's uh, it leaps up in the air and he's kind of being semi-blasted up with it and then he like leans over and stabs it in the eye. Like that is a very Ahab moment. I, you mm-hmm. know, the original Jaws mm-hmm. very much depending on this idea of, of Quint as Captain Ahab forever in search of, of his white whale. Although in his case, it doesn't feel like a specific white whale. It feels like, you know, shark kind. Like he's just perpetually revenging himself (laughs) for what he went through. And here instead, we don't really get Statham like building up that kind of like lifelong grudge. But we do kind of get an end of Moby Dick moment. It's very much like Moby Dick in other ways as well. I don't think actually. (laughs) (laughs) You know what the grossest moment is? I think the grossest moment is that whale blowing up that's the, when it's the whale meat everywhere and I, th- I think the grossest moment in jaws i've decided is the part where 
Brody has that glass of beer that's almost empty and he dumps all that wine in it. I just can't imagine what that tastes like. I think it probably tastes like scotchka in the room. I guess. Yeah, probably. That scene in and of itself is just so funny because he's, you know, he's got the bottle of wine that uh, Hooper gives him. And it's he's, clearly a nice bottle of wine. Too. Yeah. And he's just like, I dump 50% of this straight into my water glass. You you two can have like Hooper and his wife can like have a, a little wine glass each. But I mean, he's just come back from the the day of yeah. the entire town, like loathing him for for not doing something about the thing he desperately tried to do something. That about. stuff is rough. That stuff with the mom who lost her kid and confronting him that really grounds that story. Mm-hmm. And, and the Meg doesn't have that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, the Meg. Yeah, it's also. I mean, we we talked a little about Robert Shaw's big monologue versus Statham's background. I mean, if you told me that there were two movies and one of them gave you somebody's tragic backstory entirely through action, and the other one just had him sit at a table and give you like a five-minute speech about what happened to him, I would definitely assume that the action one was the better one. Mm -hmm. But that speech, man, I mean, part of it is the delivery, part of it is the grimness, part of it is knowing that it's based fairly closely on history. And part of it is just, I think, the familiarity of anybody who's kind of sat around with friends drinking and knows that like transition into the stage of the night where things stop being rambunctious and sort of get calm and, and tired. Like that moment is so humanly familiar in a way that literally nothing in the Meg is familiar to me. But everything else in the Meg is very, very familiar. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, like who hasn't gone flying through the air to like harpoon a giant Neolithic shark in the face? I'm, I'm I'm booked to do that this weekend. I have a an excursion plan. Oh, did you? Yeah. Are you doing the spa package when yeah. you get that and your nails done? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Get the, the nails done after. Oh yeah, please. The mega I've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how many giant prehistoric megalodons have you killed, Genevieve? All right, we don't we, we don't want to know about that. There's probably some kind of hunting limit on them. Jaws is widely available on streaming services and to Amazon Prime video members, and it's available in your choice of cheap DVDs or expensive Blu-rays. The Meg is currently in theaters, skeptical question mark. We'll see if it still is by the time uh, this comes out, but it seems to be doing reasonably well so far, and it's still August. We'll be right back with your next picture show. it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? I'm going to promote a website by way of promoting an article I wrote by way of promoting Tasha's <laughs> employer, The Verge. For The Verge, I wrote a piece about Nicholas Winding Refn's new streaming service by NWR, which we knew was coming, and we didn't know exactly what kind of form it would take. Uh, we know that Refn bought up a lot of old exploitation films and was going to be streaming them for free. And this first selection kind of gives you a sense of, of, of the fairly exciting shape that the site is going to take. They have a guest editor named Jimmy McDonough, who's written about exploitation films. He's done biographies of Al Green and Neil Young. He's, he's done a lot of stuff. He selected three films, 
under the heading of regional renegades. So all like low budget films from the mid sixties from regional directors, and they're really quite different. And if you want to go into the details of it, my article is is up on the on the verge. But I think what's kind of been buried in here is yeah, you can stream these films and they're really interesting. They've been restored and they look as great as films that have pretty low production values to begin with can look. But they're all supplemented by this article after article about both the films, the filmmakers, the kind of the world of the films and sort of like tangentially uh, related articles, like sort of an article on a New Orleans based magician, magician, musician, uh, <laughs> the other, other one. And it's just, there's, it goes deep. There's just tons and there's, you know, there's short films and one of the, um, Refn actually bought not just the films, but the wardrobe of one of the directors who has a collection of nudie suits, and he, he brought in uh, Darius Kanji to photograph them. Um, it's just it's it's a really place you can kind of get lost in. I would, I would definitely recommend it. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do next. The next guest editor is guest editors is the British magazine Little White Lies. So it should be interesting to see what they do. And I think um, for some reason. I like it when film focused websites that go deep into uh, film history and uh, explore um, obscure corners and aren't necessarily driven by the latest news and, and traffic grabs. Uh, for some reason, I like it when those succeed. So I'm definitely, I'm, ro- I'm rooting for this one. Uh, Jenny, how about you? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to recommend a movie that, uh, when you hear this, will not be in theaters yet, but it will be in a few days. It comes out August 31st. Um, the movie is The Little Stranger. This is a new one from Lenny Abramson, who directed Room and before that uh, Frank. And it's based on a novel by Sarah Waters, who is a writer that I really like, as does Tasha, and was responsible for The Fingersmith, which turned into Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden uh, a couple years ago, which we also all really like. So there's a lot going into this movie that I really like. And I actually really like the resulting movie quite a bit. It stars Domhnall Gleeson, or Nom Nom Policeman, as I call him. Uh, (laughs) Still don't get it, but okay. Um, It stars Domhnall Gleeson as this sort of country doctor in post-war Britain who um, takes an interest in an aristocratic family down on their luck living in a dilapidated old estate and sort of takes the shape of a haunted house movie. Um, It's very explicitly a haunted house movie, I should say, but it is like most haunted house movies sort of dealing with a deeper underlying story about class and to a slightly lesser extent gender and the death of the aristocracy. And there's a lot going on uh, underneath the surface of this movie. It is a very creepy surface uh, (laughs) as well. I, I think this... I'm a little surprised to be recommending this film, which I think does slot pretty squarely into the horror genre while also being not necessarily what you would think of as a quote-unquote typical horror movie, which is to say it's very creepy and there are some definite scares in it. But there's also a lot of very interesting thematic stuff happening. And what I really like about it is what it does with its narrator, with its central character and who that character reveals himself to be and what his interactions with the family of mostly women he takes an interest in, what those interactions turn out to be. It's a movie that like I don't really want to spoil too much about, particularly because I think one of its biggest flaws is that it does maybe hold your hand a little too much in uh, in terms of where it goes with its ending, um, when I think it's the story is probably better served by leaving it more ambiguous than the movie does. But um, I still think it's uh, it was pretty successful and uh, a very interesting movie that I kind of like. wish we would be able to talk about on this uh, 
podcast, but I don't think we're going to be able to. So I will just suggest you see The Little Stranger, which should be in theaters this weekend. Yeah, I second that one. It was uh, a really interesting film. I, I saw it entirely for the Sarah Waters connection, just because I'm such a fan of her books. And it was there was just a lot unexpected to it. I mean, it feels like uh, a quiet period drama, and then it kind of becomes something else. And then the ending kind of takes a direction that I won't say I didn't foresee but that I think is interesting, is going to be interesting to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, I suspect that it's going to leave some people going, I don't understand what, and like looking on the internet. So if you watch it and you have thoughts about that ending, I think if you get on the internet and hold (laughs) the hand of somebody who is confused, they will perhaps appreciate it. It's also a very nice looking film. So I would would suggest seeing it. Yeah, it's very handsome. Yes, it is. Uh, Tasha, what about you? I don't think there's any chance that we're actually going to get to this one. Um, So I'm going to uh, go for something that I think by the time it, this podcast drops, it will already have become immensely popular, which is Crazy Rich Asians based on the Kevin Kwan best-selling book. And uh, it was just, it was lining up so obviously to be like a huge hit even before it came out, like the excitement for it was very high. It's a major movie with an all Asian cast and it is mostly set in Singapore and it deals very specifically with some of the issues that I was talking about not seeing in the mag in terms of uh, family solidarity and what is expected in uh, like a Chinese expat culture versus what is expected in other cultures and just like a, a confluence and conflict of alignments. But it doesn't really feel like any of those things. It feels like a great, big, cheery hangout movie. It is unabashedly a wealth porn movie, a food porn movie, a surroundings porn movie. It is a lifestyles of the rich and famous fantasy. And it kind of fills that same uh, niche that I saw in like Bride and Prejudice, for instance, of just uh, surrounding yourself with big, bright, simple, fun emotions and sad emotions, but not sad emotions, sad emotions, um, in just a very safe, candy-colored environment. Uh, Aquafina is delightful. Yes. She's a huge highlight for the, of the film. And the rest of it, I don't know, it feels very pat and predictable in a way that I think a lot of people find comfortable in cinema and a lot of like serious cinema fans, you know, like me and the people around this uh, table don't always uh, like key into, but Genevieve and I saw it at the same time and I mean, you had fun with yeah, it. Yeah. I, I mean, I actually like DM Tasha today to see if she was <laughs> going to uh, do it or not. Cause I was considering making it my, your next picture show for, all the the same reasons you uh you know and also like watching that movie in the theater gave me serious flashbacks to twilight like peak twilight era just in terms of the audience reaction because like crazy rich Rich asians is a it's the first of a trilogy of books that are very very popular and like a lot of people who are seeing this movie are very excited because of the books and the reactions we were getting to just like moments that were clearly taken directly from the book or character introductions of someone who is obviously going to become a big character just like gasps and squeals and you know just it was it was a very exciting uh, movie going experience while also being like kind of annoying because a lot of people were talking but they were talking because they were excited and I can't be upset about that yeah I mean it was the kind of audience engagement where you can tell that people are expecting this to be like a hangout movie 
where you're all hanging out with your friends in the theater, like watching your other friends on the screen. Like it's that kind of environment. Um, you're much wealthier, more beautiful friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're aspirational friends. Yes, yes. Uh, and, you know, there's a little humor about that, I think, in the movie, particularly with Aquafina's character of, you know, her family is really rich, but they're apparently not insanely over the moon rich. Yeah. She gets to hang out with the they're insanely over the moon rich. Ha, I see what you did there. When she gets to hang out with the crazy rich uh, people, she's she behaves like any other social climber. And it's really a hoot. Yeah. The whole movie I would describe as a hoot. It's definitely not going to challenge the, the Kubrick fans among us. Uh, and it doesn't have to. It's fun. But it's also really important just in terms yeah. of representation like there a lot has been written already about what it's like as somebody from like the singapore uh or like malaysian area there's a lot of different cultures and classes and clashes represented in this movie there's a lot of different ways of speaking like colloquialisms and slang represented in this movie and a lot of people have already written about what it feels like to see like their culture their yeah. their people specifically on screen or to see themselves as objects of affection Objects of affection, objects of uh, desire, and objects of aspiration. Um, yeah, it's it's import is all extra textual. I would say, and <laughs> and the, the movie itself is is very frothy, but a, a good time nonetheless. Yeah, I, it's I a fun it. it's a fun froth. Yeah. Well, that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out September fourth and eleventh. Genevieve, what are we discussing? The specter of white supremacy has been a recurring theme in Spike Lee's work since Mookie threw a trash can through the window of Sal's pizzeria, igniting a national conversation that some critics, all white, consider genuinely dangerous. But Lee has never addressed that theme more directly than he does in his latest film, Black Klansman, a provocative comedy drama about Ron Stallworth, an African-American police detective in Colorado Springs in the 1970s, who was involved in an undercover operation to infiltrate and expose the Ku Klux Klan. Stallworth's difficulty finding a place for himself in an all-white, often racially hostile department recalls Lee's 1992 biopic Malcolm X about the life and death of the great African-American activist, from his criminal past to his incarceration and conversion to Islam to his rise as an uncompromising voice in the civil rights movement. The central questions in both films are the same. How do African-Americans find a place for themselves in a hostile culture? Over the next two weeks, we'll discuss Lee's varied approaches to this question and the controversies both films have drummed up. We'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Jaws, The Meg, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith. Oh, you can find me all over the place. I'm a freelance writer, guys. Um, I'm at I'm Rolling Stone. I'm at The Verge. I'm at Vulture. Uh, I should have a piece up at The Ringer by the time this, this uh, runs. And uh, you can click my clips at keithphipps.com. And you can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000. Tasha? You can find me over at TheVerge.com, where I'm the film and TV editor. These days, I uh, edit a little more than I write, but I also write some. And you can find me talking about stuff I'm writing, stuff I'm editing, and just stuff in general on Twitter, at Tasha Robinson. Genevieve? You can find me at Vox.com, where I am also doing more editing than writing these days and most days. And you can find me on Twitter, at Genevieve Kosky. You can find our absent co-host, Scott Tobias, 
in pieces on a beach somewhere covered with crabs <laughs> or alternately back here for our next podcast. And you can find him online all over the place. He's the editor in chief of Oscilloscope's Musings. He writes for the New York Times, for Vulture, for well, pretty much Washington Post, the Washington Post, uh, many other places. And he's on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at NextPitcherPod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpitchershow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please do. Apple Podcast subscriptions help podcasts gain more prominence and more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and every review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going and growing. And it makes us happy. <laughs> that is also very important, apparently, according to uh, how Crazy Rich Asians thinks about Americans. <laughs> Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast, and thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space in her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. How do you know that the girl from Jaws had dandruff? They found her head and shoulders on the beach.